Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And the two of us are both brilliant sports bettors. We absolutely cleaned up on Sunday by taking the over in the Lakers-Nuggets game. Of course, we should probably mention that the line was zero points. We just needed one point from either team for that over to hit, thanks to a DraftKings promo that paid even money on a bet of up to $25. Still, a win is a win. We are geniuses. Uh, John, do you have any words of encouragement or condolence for our listeners in states without mobile sports betting who aren't able to take advantage of this free money the way us lucky New Jerseyans and Pennsylvanians are? Well, I'll make him even more jealous, Eric. I went to make a, a small play on DraftKings Tuesday night on the golf, and I noticed that I had a free $20 bet coming to me that was about to expire. I didn't even know. Hmm. So I uncharacteristically, as you will agree, grabbed second choice Patrick Cantley at 9-1. to one. So Cantley ties it to the course record in round one, and I might win $180 off no risk. This is awesome. And then what about 10 or 11 holes left on Sunday? Daniel Berger led Cantley by one shot and everyone else by three shots. So... I tried to think like a sharp and I, uh, I figure, well, nobody else scares me there. So I pound $20 in real money on burger at plus 150. So mm. yada, 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 burger wins a tournament and uh, I pick up another 30 bucks. So um, all that said, um, I've stuck to my conclusion after that recent podcast chat with uh, Rufus Peabody, the professional gambler. Uh, I'm not pointing out free money like Lakers, Nuggets, the family or friends. We don't specifically ask. I mean, people are here. They're here. But uh, it's like no sports betting operators, a charity. So clearly some sort of financial protection shows that for every cheap bastard like we are, there are plenty more. We'll pay that $25 forward and then some. So, you know, they'll be just fine. I don't worry about DraftKings. Yeah, no, I don't worry about them either. It's, you know, it's a weird feeling. Like I, I will never say no to free money as long as it's coming from someone who can afford to give it to me, which is certainly the case here. But, you know, I'm finding there's also something to be said for the sense of accomplishment that comes with winning a real bet. Um, I'm not I'm not telling DraftKings to stop doing this stuff. Don't misunderstand me. But it, it's a lot less fulfilling when you wake up the next morning and you look at your bankroll and it's $50 higher than when you last looked and you didn't have to make some kind of semi-intelligent decision to accomplish that. Uh, but, you know, hey, of all the stupid things I've ever complained about in my life, this would maybe rank as the stupidest to complain that my sports betting win isn't emotionally fulfilling enough. Uh, yeah. I deserve any eye rolls I'm getting from the listeners right now. I yeah, think. and for me, I because, <laughs> you know, when I think about it, you know, I'm up a couple hundred dollars lifetime on DraftKings, and if I really broke it down, maybe two-thirds of it is from promos. So, <laughs> right. so yeah, I'm not really killing it but I'm winning a little bit. And um, hey, if if we can do this wisely and we're smart enough not to just, you know, fritter it away right away, I, I think we, you know, we're being disciplined. We're also being cheap, but still, <laughs> I like disciplined. It's, it's, it's a nicer sounding word. Exactly. So uh, I'm not going to apologize for it. <laughs> yes, we are your disciplined sports betting idols. Uh, I, do, I don't want anyone thinking of, of us as their cheap sports betting idols, although, you know, <laughs> if the shoe fits. All right. Well, thank you to everyone for joining your disciplined sports betting idols for episode number 130 of gamble on if you missed any of our previous 129 episodes they're all available on soundcloud apple Podcasts, and spotify please subscribe rate and review the podcast is absolutely free it's the best deal on the internet other than maybe the opportunity to bet on at least one point to be scored in a basketball game. And coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by Aubrey Levy, the vice president of marketing and content for The Score, to talk about sports betting in both his native Canada and south of the border here in America, where The Score's mobile sports book recently entered its fourth state. But first, it's been a week of some big numbers in the world of gambling, so let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling.
Wednesday is known as Hump Day, but in the gaming world this week, it was Revenue News Dump Day, as several of the biggest gambling states reported their January 2021 figures within hours of each other. New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Michigan all reported on Wednesday, plus Indiana shared its numbers on Monday. So let's hit on the quick highlights for each. Uh, Let's start with the king, New Jersey, where an eight-month streak of increasing sports betting handle was snapped in January, but we still got the second biggest handle month ever, $958.7 million, oh so close again to that magical billion dollar mark. Sportsbooks profited a record $82.6 million on an 8.6% hold. But that $82.6 million the house earned from sports betting is not as much as the $103.8 million the house earned from online casino gaming, a new single month record, the first time that number has crossed $100 million. Across the river in Pennsylvania, the numbers were not quite as high, but state records were set for both sports betting handle and iCasino. Sports handle was $615.3 million, up 12.2% over the record set in December, although the hold after paying out promotional credits was a modest $34 million. And online casino revenue was up 12.3% over December's record mark to a new record of $80.4 million. In Michigan, we got our first glimpse at the impact of online gaming, thanks to mobile sportsbooks being live for the final 10 days of January. In that period of time, basically one third of a month, total handle was $115 million, with a very high hold of 11.5%, resulting in $13.3 million in revenue. FanDuel, DraftKings, Barstool, and BetMGM were all grouped closely atop the handle rankings. While BetMGM was number one in online casino, which for the whole state generated $27.5 million in revenue in 10 days. And the last state we want to hit on is Indiana, where January sports betting handle was $348.2 million, a new state record, and not a bad number at all for a state with a population of about $6.7 million. So, John, lots to digest there. What numbers and trends stand out to you? Well, you know, New Jersey and yes, Delaware uh, launched online casino gaming in November of 2013. That's a long, long time ago in the U.S. legal gambling business. Uh, Sony launched his PlayStation 4 that month. Uh, hmm. New York City elected Bill de Blasio as mayor his first term. Uh, Pharrell Williams released a song you may remember called Happy. And uh, for you, Eric, Manny Pacquiao defeated American Brandon Rios <laughs> to win the WBO welterweight title. Your Pacquiao pronunciation could use a little work, but I'll forgive it. Okay. Uh, Packy, yeah, okay, yeah, uh, Packy, okay, uh, and finally, a movie you all may have seen called Frozen was released. I don't know if you ever saw that one, Eric, but uh, I, your... I have a daughter. I saw it. Yeah, I, I figured. Yeah, so uh, that takes me to my online casino point and how many state legislators have decided to well, yes. Let it go when it comes to collecting (laughs) revenue on that front, as well as allowing the residents to play the games in a regulated, controlled environment. New Jersey, meanwhile, pocketed $15.5 million in taxes on its gambling last month off those record revenue figures and another $10 million or so in uh, sports betting taxes, by the way, in a month. Uh, Now, regulating online casino gaming with a responsible portion of revenue is, of course, set aside to help all problem gamblers, legal or not. That that all seems to make sense for states that are willing to get into the uh, expanded gambling game. So... But there are plenty of states that have gone ahead with mobile sports betting, but they're not yet on with online casino gambling. It's kind of curious. What else here? Um, Pennsylvania's stronger performance, it seems, in online casino versus mobile sports betting. I think that's interesting. Uh, It's a great sports state, or is is the 250 miles or so between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh? uh, Is that telling another tale? I'm not sure. Uh, Michigan, that's a big start. I like that. Indiana is going to break sports betting records almost every month this year, I think. And look out for March Madness, uh, where they're hosting the whole thing, by the way. Um, I'll add one other uh, bit of news uh, is that Illinois, which reports about a month behind everybody else, uh, (laughs) finally released December numbers this week. So we now know the total national handle for December uh, was $3.77 billion, a new record. Crazy that just a few months ago, I was writing excitedly about the possibility of hitting $3 billion. Now we're closing in on $4 billion in a single month. And uh, we'll get there in March. I'm almost sure of it. Uh, Looking ahead from these January numbers for February, 
I would expect that even with the Super Bowl to boost handle big time, we'll see numbers in most states drop from January to February, not Michigan or Virginia, you know, as those are both uh, didn't didn't have full months in January, but most states it should go down, you know, shorter month, only one football game as big as that game was and so forth. Uh, But then March, uh, you hinted at it with March Madness. That's when records will be set records that might last until September. Um, the only state specific numbers that I want to weigh in on is, is Michigan. Uh, it's a solid start for 10 days of business. And you'd expect based on population that Michigan, you know, once the market matures would come in a little behind Illinois and Pennsylvania, but that online casino revenue suggests it could do better than that. Uh, $27.5 million in 10 days translates to a little over $80 million in a full month. Uh, that would be even with Pennsylvania already. Um, so let's keep an eye on that. I don't know if it's just, you know, shiny new toy launch excitement, or if we're going to be trying to figure out a couple of months from now, why it is that Michigan loves its online casino games so much. That might be a, a, a theme piece we're writing a couple months from now, if, if that trend continues. Yeah. I wonder if they figured out, uh, you know, what other states haven't and uh, how to explain to the average person who's not a serious gambler that no seriously you, you probably had a vague idea you can you know do online casino gambling online but you, you might know that it's illegal or you're not sure but like really we we endorse this we're regulating it we're taxing it it's all good i mean new jersey ran into this problem in 2013 as i mentioned mm-hmm. because for the first couple of years it was like is that really legal seriously I, I don't know i don't understand it and so the ramp up was fairly slow the first few years um, uh, and then about uh, three years ago or so, the the awareness, partly from all the uh, infernal commercials that are on in this market, uh, uh, it kind of reached a critical mass where enough people knew about it that they were talking about it with their friends and on Facebook, just sending a message and, you know, I won this or I didn't win that. And so Michigan seems to be way ahead of the game there. So I'm really intrigued by them. Yeah, you make a great point. That's that's probably the the key thing here is that the the ramp up is totally different. There, everything was launching at once. Everyone knew it was coming for a little while. They had time to educate the public, and the public has had years of watching some other states do it to to get educated. So you're right. They they really hit the ground running. Uh, all right, for our second story. We go from these numbers, mostly concerning digital gaming, to America's brick and mortar gambling capital, Las Vegas. Last Thursday, Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak announced an easing of COVID restrictions, boosting capacity limits on casino floors from 25% to 35% effective this past Monday, and then back up to 50% on March 15th, at which point shows and meetings can increase to 250 people just in time for casinos to host March Madness parties. It didn't take long for these announcements from Sisolak to show an impact as the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino quickly announced a reopening date and MGM announced the planned full reopening of Mandalay Bay, Park MGM and the Mirage, all of which had closed back in the fall for midweek business, only taking customers from Thursday night to Monday morning. In an article for U.S. Bets, Buck Wargo reported that some properties are already reporting room bookings picking up, and several sources expressed optimism over smaller conventions being able to come back to Vegas next month. John, a lot of people have been critical of Sisolak uh, and, and how Nevada handled the initial reopenings last spring and summer. How do you feel about the state's approach as outlined for 2021? Would you predict a a straight line from here where restrictions keep getting eased and and never have to be retightened along the way? Uh, And most importantly, what are the odds you'll be in Vegas for G2E this fall? Well, uh, yeah, I've been pleasantly surprised by the results in a lot of states that, you know, seem to me, I would say, were gambling at the ultimate level, right, by their degree of closures and restrictions or, or lack thereof. Um, I didn't buy into the clickbait headlines of Armageddon uh, because we did, just didn't know. So I thought it was a gamble, not necessarily uh, fate, right? And, you know, some of the infection rates are high in some of those states, but a lot of businesses and jobs were saved too, you know, so not my style, but... You know, the elected officials and the citizens are making their choices, and it's not been quite Armageddon. Uh, A number of people, meanwhile, getting vaccinated continues to grow, and whatever relatively chilly weather Vegas gets shouldn't be around much longer, allowing for better taking advantage, you know, of big outdoor spaces. I think they will do that. Uh, Plus, most casinos have... uh, exponentially better ventilation systems than your local grocery or department store. People don't seem to realize that. So with some limited capacity and it it just seems to be working out. So I I think that 
I think Vegas is going to pull this off. And I think that G2E is on for the fall and that I'm there in person. And, and anyone who mentions this podcast to me, I'll offer a hearty hand. All right. I'll offer you a fist bump and a tip of the imaginary cap. How's that? <laughs> uh, and know. still, sorry, no hugs. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, the, the Armageddon thing, it was a little Armageddon-y in Vegas uh, in the May, June when they were opening back up and all of the sort of people who were perfectly willing to get up in your face and party all converged on Vegas at once and it became sort of a, a hub of spread, I think, to some degree. But uh, other, th- other than that, most of the casino reopenings, you're absolutely right, have not caused anything remotely Armageddon-like. I'm still a little concerned uh, about possibly rushing it with this approach. Like uh, Just the up to 250 people in a room watching March Madness games together uh, if there isn't some kind of vaccination requirement, which they won't, there won't be uh, at, at this stage, you know, people pulling their masks down as they drink, it's potentially problematic. Uh, I, I might have liked to have seen Sislak hold off on that 50% capacity stage until like June, when pretty much anyone who wants the vaccine will have been able to get the vaccine. And then you can even start saying, you want to attend this conference, we need to see a vaccine certificate and you're in. Not that they'll do that, but they potentially could down the road. Uh, but, you know, he's in an impossible spot. Every governor is and has been throughout this. These businesses want to start moving before March Madness and not sit idle for another four months or so. But it wouldn't totally shock me if we have this moment of loosening to help Vegas feel more like Vegas for March Madness. And then we see some not so great COVID trends afterwards, and they maybe need to tighten up a bit one last time in like April and May. Uh, Although to, to get back to a thing you hit on there, by then you can pretty much do anything outdoors in Vegas, which will really be key. So, you know, March may or may not go as smoothly as they're, they're hoping. I do think after that, we'll really see Vegas bit by bit feeling more and more like the Vegas we remember. Well, I think it's in every Vegas casino's interest in, in a big, big way to try to be as safe as possible. So, sure. look, obviously, when you're out there, you know, happens in Vegas, stays in Vegas, uh, things get a little rowdy, things a little wild. And it's like, well, you know, people make their own choices. They're adults. What's the big deal here? If you if you're not trying to be careful and letting everything run roughshod, you're really increasing the odds of, uh, of, of an outbreak like you're talking about. And that would be exponentially worse than mm-hmm. just being a little, you know, throwing a few people out and kind of being a nanny to some of the, uh, the partiers. So I think, I think the casinos will do a better job than people expect and maybe a better job than some of the rowdies might want. But I, I, it's very important to them to try and avoid this. And, and they can definitely improve those odds if they if they're just a little little more focused on, OK, guys, you know, uh, let's take it easy a little bit or maybe you close a little bit earlier, whatever it is, right. you know, get the, the gist of Vegas for everybody out there, but maybe not, uh, you know, all the way to the end. Yeah. And, and one thing that's always on my mind as a poker guy is just I'm already starting to think about what the world series of poker is going to look like. You know, it usually starts in late May. Uh, I expect it will happen. Uh, Maybe they started a little later than usual. It's adjust the schedule a little, but uh, I I think we're going to see an in-person world series of poker. Uh, But I would fully expect the number of players to be way down. Even with the vaccines widely available, I wouldn't be surprised if half the typical world series crowd isn't quite comfortable sitting at a poker table like that for hours on end by this summer. Uh, we, we certainly have some more time to explore that, but that is uh, something that's starting to get on my mind as, uh, as Nevada's uh, restrictions are, are gradually being lifted. Right. But this is part of a bigger story, which is sort of 2021 is starting to feel like a year of rebound. You know, mm-hmm. everything went to hell in 2020 for the entire year. And uh, and now we're starting to get a feel of, yeah, we can't do everything we want to do just yet, but it's getting a little better here, a little better there. And, uh, you know, it's tough to be patient, but uh, I think if, if things keep getting better and better month after month, that's going to be, uh, you know, pretty exciting for the summer and fall for sure. All right. Our third and final news story this week is also a brick and mortar casino story, Uh, but it's not about welcoming more customers in. It's about tearing a building down. The Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino on the Atlantic City boardwalk was officially turned to rubble on Wednesday morning at 9.07 a.m., seven years after it closed its doors. As people might be aware, the name on the property, Trump, 
could be considered divisive. Uh, and since some people are not big fans of former President Donald Trump, initially, Bodner's Auctions hosted an auction for the right to push the button and bring the casino hotel down, with bids reaching $175,000 and some speculating a million dollars was in sight. But Carl Icahn, who took over ownership of the property, stepped in and shut down the auction, uh, though the billionaire did proceed to donate $175,000 to the Boys and Girls Club of Atlantic City. Anyway, Trump once owned and operated three casinos in Atlantic City. Two were sold and rebranded, and now the third, Trump Plaza, is gone, which, as you noted in your article Wednesday, John, marks the end of an era. Uh, John, uh, thoughts on the aborted auction, uh, memories of Trump Plaza, and did you think for a moment about paying 10 bucks to sit in your car and watch the tower fall? <laughs> well, first of all, I got to credit somebody on uh, Carl Icahn's staff. They were brilliant in making that donation because, you know, 175000 is not even a rounding error for him, but uh, it blunts virtually all criticism. It's a big donation of a great cause, and anyone who's driven through Atlantic City realizes that money will make a, a lot of difference to a lot of young people. So that was that was a win for him and, and a win for the city. So that's good. Uh, but remember, Trump got out of the Atlantic City casino business really in around 2009. You know, not as he says, because he saw the bottom dropping out and, you know, he was his business savvy, figured it out. Uh, I covered Borgata's opening in 2003. And I remember the subsequent arms race by most rival casinos. You know, they were spending hundreds of millions of dollars, a lot of them in uh, in upgrades to try and keep up with the Joneses or the Jones, in this case, Borgata. You know, Trump was the guy with the short stack in a poker game and he was just fortunate to be in the process of leaving it uh, in retrospect so uh, you know I also remember I covered the launch of the uh, demolition of Giant Stadium in the Meadowlands in 2010 the site was too close to the new stadium for this full-scale implosion like Trump Plaza got uh, but in both cases there were people on hand who had a personal connection to the building's history construction workers who helped build it former employees their offspring it just felt as if they had to be there for the sake of closure uh, and I can understand that but you know as I noted in the article, the opening of Trump Taj Mahal in 1990 stole much of the plaza's panache just six years after it opened. So really Trump Plaza in my mind was just 1980s relic that had, you know, all the big fights and uh, the big uh, celebrity uh, appearances and the, it was in featured in movies and such so, so on. But right. it's just been an, it was an afterthought for the last 15, almost 20 years that it was open. So I, I never thought much of it. Um, so being a 1980s relic, I kind of wish they would have had, you know, Madonna or Oreo Speedwagon <laughs> perform a hit or two for the frozen stragglers who showed up at the Atlantic City Beach to see it, or those, as you say, who paid 10 bucks to sit in a car and watch. Uh, and even no offense to those performers, but even that wouldn't have got me down there. Nowhere. Right. <laughs> Not even Speedwagon, huh? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it was an interesting point that you made in the the article about uh, the Taj Mahal. Uh, I hadn't really thought about that, that he hurt one of his own businesses by launching the, this other business. I, I'd never really made the connection, but it does it does sort of add up looking back at it now. And I do remember when the Taj Mahal opened in 1990, I was you know not gambling age yet, not going to Atlantic City with any regularity, whatever. But uh, that was a big story just on, uh, up and down the East Coast. Um, I think that this is a significant moment in terms of Atlantic City turning the page and moving on. You know, Trump's casinos were a defining feature of Atlantic City in the 80s and 90s. This is a new era now. Atlantic City, we've talked about this, seems to have the correct number of casinos in place and post-pandemic could be positioned for a little revival. Some of them are, are doing well even during the pandemic. Uh, it's a good time to wipe the slate clean get rid of those buildings with that name on them that reminds people of the recent time when casinos in Atlantic City were going out of business one after another and, uh, and kind of move forward from here. Yeah, it's an incredible location on the boardwalk too, yeah. uh, next to Boardwalk Hall and and really kind of a central point. So uh, yeah, obviously if a casino is built, that's going to cannibalize a business and that's not going to be the best use of the of the site. So uh, the city and the state really should be working out some kind of deal where they can acquire the property and then do something 
something kind of, uh, you know, like a greenway they've talked about or some, some kind of a tourist uh, attraction, something with beauty. You know, you've got the, the ocean there. You've got the beach. You've got the boardwalk. You've got the sort of uh, the schlocky stores on the boardwalk that are that kind of uh, have their own little bit of style. Um, and But what about something new and modern to go at the new indoor water amusement park? And they're adding more family attractions. So they've really got an opportunity with that exact spot to kind of redefine the city. I'm not... Uh, terribly optimistic about that going right to being in Atlantic City history, but at uh, least it's a possibility. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm curious to see if they too try to go new and modern, how well that meshes with Boardwalk Hall, which is anything but new, new and modern. I mean, I've been there countless times. Uh, you know, I don't have any notable stories about Trump Plaza, but I do have all sorts of memories of Boardwalk Hall. I uh, got to watch yeah. countless great boxing matches there, but it, it, it is not the most modern venue. So uh, I, I wonder what the future holds for Boardwalk Hall, not not directly a gambling industry concern, I, I suppose, for us to dive too deep on in this podcast. But I, I I wonder what the future is for Boardwalk Hall and how well it meshes with whatever new construction comes in there. Well, I, I think it's been upgraded a, a bit since you were there, but uh, point taken. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. We talk every week on this podcast about the expansion of legal sports betting in the United States, but there's also something brewing just beyond the U.S. borders. Sports betting expansion is a hot topic in Canada as well. And joining us now to discuss the scene on both sides of the border is Aubrey Levy, the vice president of marketing and content for The Score, a Toronto-based media company that also operates legal sports books in New Jersey, Indiana, Colorado, and as of this week, Iowa. Aubrey, welcome to Gamble On. Thanks, Eric. Great to be with you. So let's talk first about Canada. Your home country is inching closer to legalizing single game betting. Uh, We're recording this part of the podcast on Wednesday afternoon, and there's a hearing on a bill happening as we speak. Uh, If sports betting gets legalized and regulated, what do you see the scores role being in the Canadian sports betting scene? Do you anticipate having a higher market share in Canada than you currently do in the competitive U.S. markets? Yeah, so we are obviously hugely excited about the potential for Canada. Um, as you mentioned, uh, there's a bill, there's a couple of them making their way through um, through legislation. Um, they seem to have a lot of momentum and a lot of optimism that there's going to be um, a favorable outcome towards the repeal of single event, uh, the ban on single event wagering, and then a commercial framework in various provinces around the country for regulated and open and commercial sports betting. Canada is our backyard. Um, Canada is where we had our roots and where we have uh, still to this day an incredibly large and highly engaged user base. So the score as a media business, which is the foundational reason we're in the betting business, just a, a starting point. But, you know, in the media business, we're the second largest sports app in North America, where we're, you know, kind of chasing down ESPN um, and hitting well above our weight class up against guys who have much larger brand, much larger linear channels. Mm-hmm. In Canada, we are the de facto digital sports brand by a mile. We have millions of users. You know, people grew up watching us because our, our, our origins were linear television was the sports network in Canada. So people grew up with affinity uh, for the score and they've kept with us into digital. Um, and so we know that we, we know that there is huge betting interest there. We know they have brand affinity and brand loyalty to us. And we know we've been servicing them with betting content, betting data, betting editorial, just like we have for our users in the US. So when sports betting uh, hopefully opens up in Canada, we're going to be ready. We're going to be there day one. And you know, without getting to what we think specifically we might do from a market share perspective, we think it's a tremendously large opportunity. You know, we have this playbook of merging media and betting together, which is a differentiated strategy for us in the U.S., but it's predicated off of this media user base, right? We have four to five million users, uh, 100 plus sessions per user per month across North America. So it's taking all the learnings we've applied in our state-by-state rollout in the U.S. about how you bring the bet closer to the user, how you offer it to sports fans in a differentiated way, uh, and then coupling that for our Canadian user base with the brand reach and the awareness that we have. So, you know, we, we don't think that we're going to take a backseat to anybody in Canada, and we're incredibly excited for the opportunity to bring the score bet to uh, Ontario users and hopefully users across the country. 
Yeah, and, and let's look at uh, the U.S. too, uh, Aubrey. Obviously, um, I'm always a little impressed being in New Jersey, companies that are from, from beyond, often it's Europe, here it's Canada, but they kind of look at, well, if we're going to get started, New Jersey is, is the place to be. So I think you guys were on top of that a couple of years ago. Uh, but now I'm curious uh, what you thought um, of the New Jersey market would be and what it turned out to be, and then also your expectations of, say, in Indiana or Colorado and you're just getting started in Iowa, you know, was the, is the feeling, well, we'll just roll out the exact same product basically uh, to those other states, or do you feel, uh, looking from not 10,000 feet, but we'll say 1,000 feet in Canada, you know, that we, we have to look at these uh, state by state as being terribly different, or are they really pretty much, uh, I guess I'll say all Americans are alike in terms of betting? <laughs> well, people definitely have regionalized sports preferences without question. Right. And we are learning the nuances of how those regionalized sports preferences translate into betting behavior as we, to your point, launched in Jersey, rolled out in Indiana and Colorado, now into Iowa. Right. Obviously, you know, each state, Iowa is a huge college basketball state, not a lot of professional sports teams in there. Colorado, a ton of professional sports teams. Right. So it's this how those again, how those regional preferences are translating to betting behavior. We're learning and adapting and being iterative on the fly. But fundamentally, our value proposition as we roll into each state stays the same, it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And that value proposition is that our belief is nobody bets in isolation, nobody bets as a pure betting transaction, they bet as a component of this overall sports experience and sports fandom that they have, kind of no different than they would playing fantasy or going to the bar or going to a game or just following a game. So our job is to bring the bet as close to the user as possible and make their life as dead simple as it can be to not disrupt their enjoyment of the game while still being able to get a bet on. And where we're interestingly and uniquely positioned is because we have that media base and betting base operated by the same entity, um, you know, others have marketing relationships or they've had equity investments from media partners, but largely we're the only ones today in market who can operate both. And what that means is from a product experience perspective, there's a lot we can do to bring the bet so close to you that, that makes your life as simple as possible. Now there's separate experiences, separate apps, they have to be. But we, you know, we've introduced this thing called Bet Section in the media app, which allows you to see all the markets for the teams you care about, track your bets, get cash out offers, right? Do everything up until placing the bet or taking that transaction to cash out, then we take you back to the score bet. So from that perspective, as we go from state to state to state, John, where this product was in New Jersey when we launched a year and a half ago to already where it is now as we roll out into Iowa and where it will be in another 12 to 24 months, we're just going deeper and deeper and deeper towards fulfilling that and understanding how users want to go back and forth between media and betting. So the product experience is getting better in each state, each, each based on the learnings from the previous state. And then, yeah, we're getting more sophisticated with understanding how all of this regional preference and regional data we have on our users translates to betting. And remember, for us, part of why it's so exciting is we can go into any state across uh, the US, any province across Canada, and we have user base. And they're there, and we already know what, what sports they're following, if they're already bet intending based on how they're consuming betting content. So um, it's become a really fascinating uh, um, process of iterative, iterative learning of how is that translating into betting. Uh, and I, I would expect to see our sophistication just continue to grow. I guess one other question I'd have is, as you say, you can almost pick and choose states. However, first of all, you have to get through regulators, obviously, and all kinds right. of approvals. But then also uh, New Jersey, almost a billion dollars in January. Again, numbers are out today. You know, their per capita numbers are pretty astonishing. I mean, to what extent do you factor in projections of, uh, you know, what's the what's the per capita, uh, you know, annual handle expected to be? And that's why we want to be more in that state. Or is it more which states can get us regulated, you know, tomorrow and let's go there. I mean, even if their handle isn't expected to be, you know, quite the volume, if you can get in tomorrow, get in tomorrow. Look, Iowa is not the same scale of a state as New Jersey, and we're excited to roll into Iowa. For us, we want to be as pervasively available across North America as we possibly can be. And certain states have are proving that you know, based on uh, how they've rolled out their legal frameworks and whether it's retail and online or online or retail only, like all of the, it's, it's a pretty nuanced state by state um, uh, system. For us, it's where, wherever make economic and strategic sense, we're gonna go. And that calculation of what's the opportunity in a certain state certainly plays into it. But as I said, um, we can service users in any state. So if we can find the right entry point, we want to be as pervasively available across the U.S. as possible. 
Um, you know, and whether that means the state is already hotly competitive like New Jersey, but also, you know, a big market or less competitive, maybe not such a big market. Our goal and our job first and foremost is to service every score user who wants to bet to give them the option of betting with us. And as I said, because we span the entire country, um, I don't think we would shy away from any market. All right. So you've been talking about that unique positioning as, uh, you know, a, a media entity uh, and and also a sportsbook operator now. Uh, I'm curious about the expansion to the latter and, and how that happened. For, for how long has operating sportsbooks been on the scores radar? Does it go back to before the Supreme Court's ruling on PASPA or, or was it pretty soon, like immediately after that? And, and also what were those early conversations like? Like as a media company, was there a lot of internal pushback on the idea of, you know, maybe we should start taking bets? I'll answer the last uh, the last question first. And the answer is no, zero pushback. It okay. was everybody internally when PASPA repealed, like there was no question internally that that was a huge opportunity for us. Um, and largely that's because our, our, the way we'd approached betting prior to PASPA was we always understood and recognized and respected the fact that it was part of sports fans experience. A, a lot of other media brands uh, shied away from it, right? They would not, they would talk about it in abstract if at all, right? We realized like, it's, it's, it, it was, it's foolish to not acknowledge that people bet on sports. They were, they've been doing it forever. So we never did anything untoward or, or improper, but we serviced our users with content. We put betting lines into box scores. We gave them content around betting um, because it was of interest to them. And so when PASPA repealed, we had built up this user base that was already authentically intending towards betting. So the question was purely one of what's the right entry point for us? Right. And, and it was either do you go the path of becoming, you know, super affiliate and selling off your user base for very lucrative uh, advertising revenues, or do you take the other path and kind of get into the game and operate? And what we realized it was actually very quickly was if there was a path in the bigger opportunity for us as a company and what we could do for the market for our users was to operate um, logistically, operationally from a regulatory perspective, whole new business, right? Um, we had to go from being a free ad supported media app to being a transactional regulated sports book. A, a lot you have to do organizationally to do that. But because we are a smaller organization compared to some of our media partners and our focus has always been to move nimbly and win based on product and technology, we weren't scared by that at all. We saw the opportunity of that and all of that logistical stuff ultimately should end result in something that for our users feels like a totally natural extension of our business. That if for those of our users who are interested in betting, it should be as simple and easy and seamless and native to them to get their bet on. Um, so yeah, there wasn't a lot of consternation or, or heartburn about, do we want to be in this business? It was no, hell no. If there's a path <laughs> forward here, we're going. And when we got that access point in New Jersey with our partners at Monmouth, and we found some technology support to get us going, um, it was, you know, uh, all hands on deck, let's go. And it's been amazing to see the kind of entrepreneurial spirit across our organization where everybody, everybody acknowledged the opportunity that was in front of us. Um, it, it just, it, it was, uh, how could you not, right? So we, um, it was, it was an easy decision um, once the opportunity was available. Okay. And, and I'll yeah. steal, uh, as a follow-up question, I'll steal a question that John uh, tends to ask uh, almost anytime we have someone from Europe on. <laughs> and he talks about, uh, he asks them to sort of compare the attitudes towards uh, sports betting in America, which are coming along with Europe, which is where it's much more mature. I'm curious, what are the, are, is there a big difference in the attitudes towards sports betting between Canada and America from, from what you're seeing? So here's the thing. I mean, we as a sports, we're a Canadian company by origin, but our media business is always focused across North America, right? Mm -hmm. Our sports app is uh, heavily penetrated across the U.S. Like um, we've always had user base here. Uh, uh, you know, 60, 70% of our media user base is in the U.S. So it, how to service a sportsman in the U.S. versus Canada, it's not that different. I mean, sport preferences are different, right? A hockey clearly plays a much larger role north of the border than it does south of the border. Um, how you talk to them and service them is in a lot of ways the same. And then how you engage them as a better, 
Look, I'm, I'm hoping the U.S. market develops in a, in a way that's different than the European market did, where there's kind of no book loyalty. It's just, you know, everyone's promo chasing. They have five wallets on their phone. Uh, it's starting to get that way in the U.S. There's no shortage of uh, sports books coming out and just blasting marketing spend and, and trying to brute force get to market share just by, you know, they call it spray and pray marketing, right? Um, that's not our playbook. And mm -hmm. so far, what we've been seeing is by taking this approach of servicing our users, coupling with strategic performance marketing, you know, we've got incredible user behavior and you know, 50% of, uh, over 50% of our betting users are media users. So we have this ecosystem retention play that we're building that we can continue to put gas on the fire. So I, I don't, it's pretty early days for the US sports betting market. Canada will be fascinating because a lot of, play, a lot of people in Canada have been betting already right, with uh, offshore books or, or great market books. So probably uh, look, people in the US have been betting too, they were betting offshore. So I, I don't, I'm gonna reserve judgment and say that I know exactly everything that's gonna happen in Canada. All I know is there are diehard sports fans. We talked to a hell of a lot of them uh, and they're eager as hell to bet. So uh, where the nuance of how you service them versus our US audience, where that lies, um, I think we'll take our leanings from where we service them differently between our media content in both in both countries, and otherwise, we're going to be adaptive and, and iterative. And um, uh, I'm excited to see. Okay. Yeah, I, I just want to express my condolences, Aubrey. I realize that there's an incredible uh, one-time thing, probably an all-Canada uh, division this year of the NHL, where every game is Canada versus Canada, every single game. I mean, how many Toronto Maple Leafs, Ottawa Senators game do you get in, uh, you know, Calgary and Edmonton, Vancouver? I mean, that's all they play. And so every game is, is kind of a marquee game and the marketplace is not quite there yet. But uh, setting that aside, obviously, yeah, you know, we think and you mentioned that, that you know, hockey is a big sport in in uh, Canada and uh, so that's going to be popular. But. But long term, I mean, realistically, what what are Canadians going to bet on most? Is it hockey? Is it the NFL? Is it basically all the American sports? Is it just pro sports? What about European soccer, which is bigger and bigger in the U.S. too? I'm wondering what the what the marketplace is likely to be in terms of which sports are, are going to be king in Canada. Again, I'm going to reserve a little bit of judgment until we get into it and see. But largely, betting betting interest parallels where they're generally consuming already, right? In the U.S. Your NFL dominates from an awareness and a, a consumption on the media side. And if you look at the betting volume around NFL, it's huge, right? NBA, MLB also. So I think hockey will be incredibly strong. Um, I think NFL and NBA will also be incredibly strong there too. And um, I, you know, what kind of of those, let's call them secondary sports, right? Whether it's European soccer or tennis, where there's huge appetite for that in Canada to be determined. But if I'm a betting man, um, or I'm on the other end of being a, of, of a betting man, I'm going to assume hockey is going to be a, a pretty powerful driver of betting, uh, of wagering. All right, I'm going to have a little bit of a silly follow-up, but I'm not sure of the answer. So maybe it's not so silly. Uh, curling, uh, Americans get sort of into it every four years in the Winter Olympics. Um, they're kind of confused about it other than in Minnesota. But um, I'm just, just wondering, is it even possible? Is is curling going to be on the main uh, menu for uh, a Canadian sports app? I mean, it's it's to your point. It's a, every four years in the U.S. It's a huge thing. It's even bigger in Canada. If it is, we'll happily take the action. I like. <laughs> uh, why not? So, so there's potentially an opening though for a a, a serious curling tout uh, to to corner the market on that before it really <laughs> takes guys, off. If you guys are very sophisticated uh, uh, making curling picks, you might have a bit of a <laughs> the board of business. Right. I, I I don't think that's us yet, but you know we'll see. The, we'll see how the learning curve goes. All right. Well, it's been great talking to you, Aubrey. Uh, congratulations on the score's success and expansion, uh, and uh, thanks so much for for joining us on Gamble On. Likewise, Eric, John, thanks for having me. This is great. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll.
before we get to this week's bets, let's update our shared bankroll. And if we were in the same room right now, John, uh, I would high five you. Well, actually, no, you said earlier you're not into high five. So I, I would I would elbow bump you uh, because we had a perfect week. Uh, three bets, three winners. John's bet on Jason Day top 20. Bang. Very little sweat. He finished tied for seventh. We won $100 there. John also had Naomi Osaka to win her quarter of the draw at the Australian Open. She had a tough match in the round of 16, but pulled it out. So that's another $100. And my four relatively safe legs NBA same game parlay was a winner. Uh, Simmons, 10 points. Simmons, six assists. Embiid, eight rebounds. All got there without too much difficulty. The fourth leg, Tobias Harris, six rebounds. He pulled down number six with 28 seconds left in the fourth quarter to seal it. Uh, lucky, but we'll take it. So, so that one won us $108. Of course, we won't truly know that it was a perfect week until the Washington football team reaches the Super Bowl, since that was my other bet last week. But of the three non-futures bets, all three won. We profited $308, meaning we're now a manageable $883 south of our starting bankroll. We also have $757 on hold in futures bets, leaving us with $8,360 available to bet with this week. And you're up first, John. Well, yeah, I gotta, we got to crawl before we can walk again, I guess. And at least now we're crawling. So that's a start. We yeah. weren't even crawling until <laughs> this week. Um, Excellent golf event at the Riviera Country Club in L.A. Uh, just a spectacular field. I mean, eight studs are minus money to land in the top 20, for example. It gives you an idea of the quality. Uh, I'll take a bit of a chance and pair uh, Phenom Victor Hovland for 50 at plus 150 to make the top 20. And Dustin Johnson for 50 at plus 120 to make the top five. Uh, ladder is tough odds for a top five, but DJ has five wins since last summer. He's got six previous top fours at Riviera. Great player, great form, great history. And a top five, a little wiggle room in my first 50-50 split play on the bankroll. Yeah, I, I like that. A little uh, give yourself a couple opportunities to hit there. A little uh, fa factoring in potential variance. I think we have a, a better shot there of at least one of the two hitting. So, uh, all right. So I have a good recent track record with betting on season end awards about a third of the way through a season. Uh, we got there with both Aaron Rodgers and Aaron Donald. And I think we have enough information now that I can confidently bet on LeBron James for NBA MVP uh, in real life. I took advantage of a boost on Fox bet at the start of the season. I got 25 to one on either Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons to win MVP. So I am rooting for Embiid, uh, but I really think it's going to be LeBron with Anthony Davis. Now out LeBron gets to shake that idea that he's co-carrying his team, uh, which always hurts you in the MVP debate. Uh, as long as the Lakers keep winning for the next month with AD out and LeBron stays healthy, it's his. I do think if the season ended today, it would be a great debate between LeBron and Embiid. I'm ruling everyone else out, uh, barring some drastic change. I know people talk about Jokic, but his team is 15 and 13. They're the eight seed in the West. They'd need to play like 750 ball the rest of the way to give him a chance at MVP. It won't be Doncic, Durant, Giannis, maybe Stephen Curry if the Warriors go on a tear, but same as Jokic. They're, right now, they're barely over 500. So it's either LeBron or Embiid. LeBron has played in 29 of the Lakers, 29 games. Embiid has played in 23 of the Sixers, 29 games. He's on pace to play 57 out of 72. That's not enough. I, I think he needs at least 60 to have a shot at winning and his back issues will continue to force him to sit once every week or two from the way things are going. Uh, add in that LeBron has been the best player all these years, but hasn't won an MVP award since 2013. Uh, and that he's doing what he's doing at age 36, you know, like Aaron Rodgers, this might be his last best chance to win one. The narrative is there uh, in other words. Uh, so, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I checked the sports books uh, at most of them. LeBron is between plus 150 and plus 180. And honestly, those are not bad prices uh, for someone I think is now better than 50% to win it. But points bet has him all the way up at plus 200. I'm tempted to bet a lot, but I won't. I'll keep it to a standard bet size, $100 to win $200 on LeBron for NBA MVP. Well, yes, the narrative is absolutely 100%. He's old enough, and it's been long enough, that uh, the writers want to pick him to win. 
I'm just not sure if the Lakers will keep winning, but it's true if they do, uh, you know, at the rate they are. But if they do, he's he's an absolute lock. So I think that that price is nice there. So, okay. uh, and I mean, well, you have to look around to find this in uh, February. But give me one ten to win a hundred on the Dodgers winning under one hundred and three and a half games in twenty twenty one. I know Superbook has that line now in Colorado, and you'll be seeing pretty much the same line elsewhere in the next uh, week or two. Um, SportsOddsHistory.com notes that five teams since 1990 have had 100 plus win projections in Las Vegas. 1996 Braves and Indians, 1999 Yankees, 2005 Yankees, 2006 Yankees. They finished under, 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 and under. <laughs> and now all five won five, 95 to 90, 99 games. So history does not say you're going to head to the window to collect on Labor Day, all right? Um, and they came up short by an average of just 4.2 games. Uh, 1996 Braves won a pennant. 1999 Yankees, of course, even won the World Series, the, the one out of these five that did. 21-21 uh, Dodgers have incredible depth in their starting pitching rotation, which, though, is also filled with injury risk and up-and-comers. There aren't a lot of guys in their prime who are locked in to, to uh, uh, pitch plenty of innings. So, you know, they do have alternatives, but I think they're going to need them. And more importantly, if they had division in hand late, they're going to rest plenty of regulars. They're looking for another pennant not to ruin a gamble on long-term podcast play. Yeah, I, I like this bet a lot. I did see that number pop up uh, this week, 103 and a half, and it just jumped out at me as, wow, that is a really high number. And I know this team is stacked, but I, I think the under is the right play here. Um, so I was pretty long-winded with my first bet on LeBron there. My second bet won't take nearly as long, I promise. Um, boxing on Showtime Saturday night, heavyweights in the co-feature. Otto Valin is a minus 225 favorite over Dominic Brazil. I would have made Valine more like a minus 500 favorite here. The sports books are for some reason underrating him or overrating Brazil. Not going to get fancy with him to win by knockout or decision or anything specific like that. Just picking Valine outright, risking $225 to win a hundred. And that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Aubrey Levy. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And with that, John, please take us out. Well, yeah, I mentioned the Las Vegas casino decisions and elsewhere in the country is seeming to be a bit of a gamble for me many months ago. Uh, I'm going to leave you with a more mundane yet significant risk, especially those of you over 50 or those who are younger whose body age might be over that line. So here you go. Here's this the, the scenario. You get to your destination a little late. The car's still running. You drop the car keys between the seats. That was me last week. Now, smart play number one is you turn the car off, you get your haircut, then you make a sensible, leisurely effort to retrieve the key afterwards. I mean, if you can't even get to the key, I don't think a thief in broad daylight in the middle of a strip mall is going to get there either. So uh, that would be the best one. Smart play number two is you move the drivers or passenger seat all the way up and see if that solves the problem. Or if you're very short, maybe move it all the way back and that could solve it. I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't plant your left leg on the floorboard and then holding the windshield ice chipper that you found in your back seat, make a determined lunge to fish out the keys. Hello, strained knee ligament. And my slightly premature, in my mind anyway, purchase of a walker. Now, I was sitting only about 25 feet away in 1999 when ex-net Jason Williams ended his career when his planted leg in an awkward turn led to torn cartilage in his knee and a fractured tibia, yow, that led to the insertion of a metal plate and five screws in his leg. So it looks like I'm far more fortunate uh, at this point, uh, pending an MRI, but at least Jason went out with his boots on, so to speak. I mean, he was seeking position on a rebound on the court in the middle of a late season basketball game. So in a weird way, I'm actually jealous that that honorable story compared to the uh, numbskull move that I made. So with that, until next time, gamble on. And also be careful with those damn car keys. <laughs>